Hey, parents and little adventurers. Ever wondered where hot dogs come from? Dive into a world of wonder with the new children's book about cellular agriculture. Cellular agriculture? What's that? It's the science behind tomorrow's foods. Discover the journey of a family barbecue in a way that's fun, educational, and downright tasty. Grab your copy of Where Do Hot Dogs Come From? on Amazon today. Yum! The future sounds so delicious. Curious for more? Visit www.hotdog.fyi. Happy reading! Thanks for joining us on the Cultured Meat and Future Food Podcast. We're excited to have David Benzikin as the guest for today's episode. I just wanted to take a second to mention the Cultured Meat Symposium, CMS 18. Taking place in San Francisco on November 1st, it'll be a gathering of professionals in the cell-based meat and cellular agriculture space. We'll be discussing the impact, future, and flavor of cell-based meat technologies. Listeners of this show get a special discount using the code CMSPODCAST. Register and learn more at www.cms18.com. David Benzikin is the founder and CEO of Plant-Based Solutions, an award-winning strategic brand management and marketing agency for plant-based consumer products. Plant-Based Solutions has led strategy and marketing efforts for some of the world's largest meat and dairy alternative brands. Benzikin is also the CEO of Ocean Hugger Foods. Founded by certified master chef James Corwell, Ocean Hugger Foods makes delicious, plant-based alternatives to the world's most popular seafood items to stop the overfishing crisis. Ocean Hugger Foods' flagship product, Ahimi, an alternative to raw tuna made from tomatoes, is sold throughout the U.S. and Canada and will be launching in Europe and Asia in 2019. The company will also soon launch the eggplant-based eel, carrot-based salmon, and more. Ocean Hunger Foods was recently recognized as Whole Foods Market's Supplier of the Year for Outstanding Innovation. Benzikin serves as an advisor to multiple food accelerators, venture capital funds, and startups. He and his companies have been profiled in the New York Times, USA Today, Los Angeles Times, Fast Company, Wired, CNN, and more. David I'd like to welcome you to the Cultured Meat and Future Food Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. David, tell us a little bit about your background and the projects that you're currently working on. Sure. I spent about 10 years in the nonprofit animal protection movement during and after college, interning and working at places like PETA, Compassion Over Killing, a number of organizations, and ultimately spending five years at Farm Sanctuary, where I was involved in both advocacy and fundraising efforts. And it was an honor to work with those organizations and with mentors and personal heroes of mine, following in their footsteps and trying to make a difference every day in the lives of animals raised for food, who of course are so numerous and so horribly treated in the factory farming system. But through that work, I came to believe that for my own skill set, that I would be better off helping to promote the solutions to the problem rather than just educating people about the problem in our systems. I came to believe that working on marketing, brand 
trending and getting great food products out into the market that could replace the problematic animal proteins would be a more efficient and effective way to use my time. In terms of projects I'm working on today, in addition to my work as the CEO of Plant-Based Solutions, I am honored to be the CEO of Ocean Hugger Foods. We are an award-winning plant-based seafood alternative company making alternatives to things like raw tuna for sushi or poke, eel for sushi, salmon both in smoked and raw forms and other such items. And it's a really exciting business. We've launched in the US and Canada and we'll be expanding quite aggressively over the next 12 months with that business. I have a wonderful team there and an unbelievable co-founder who I'm happy to speak more about. And at Plant-Based Solutions, we are working with a lot of exciting new projects on launching a new plant-based cheese to the market, a new meat alternative product, some new plant-based vegan personal care products, and many other things that are very exciting for us. On the Ocean Hugger Foods website, there's some really awesome shots of ahimi, which is the plant-based alternative to raw tuna. Can you tell us a little bit about ahimi? And is that actually a product that's available in the U.S. now? Absolutely. Ahimi is a plant-based alternative to raw tuna. And we chose the name because it's a compound of ahi, the Hawaiian word for tuna. And mi is the suffix in Japanese meaning the spirit of. So it's the spirit of tuna. And ahimi is an unbelievable product. It's actually made from super simple ingredients. The base ingredient is actually tomato. And our secret sauce, so to speak, our secret process is that using mechanics and not chemicals, we're able to eliminate the flavor of the tomato and create that fatty, meaty texture that you're looking for from raw fish and then layer any flavor on top of it that we want to. So we can give it a Japanese marinade for sushi or Latin marinade for ceviche or anything we want. And that product is available today in Whole Foods stores at their sushi bars in about 50 stores nationwide at a number nationwide in the U.S. and at a number of restaurants and other stores, college and corporate cafeterias throughout the U.S. and Canada. You can find out everywhere our product is available and how to buy it yourself by going to our website, www.oceanhuggerfoods.com and clicking on the store locator. If we're not available near you yet, you can order our product as part of a delicious dish on vistro.com, the meal delivery service. And if you sign up for our newsletter with your zip code, you'll be notified when we become available in your area. And I'm hoping it is in one of those uh, San Francisco Whole Foods stores. Is that right? It is. It's available at the Soma Whole Foods store, the Castro Whole Foods store, and then the Gilman and Harrison Whole Foods stores in Berkeley and Oakland. And we expect to be expanding beyond that very soon. What is actually your favorite way to eat the ahimi? I really love the product so much. I should clarify, we sell just the ingredient, the ahimi itself, and we sell it to restaurants or to food service operators, different people that make prepared foods. We're not the ones who make the final dishes, which allows us to appreciate it in so many different versions with unbelievable chefs making it. 
it can be celebrated in so many ways, but I'm such a fan of the base product that I really like when it shines and when it's made as the centerpiece of a dish. That means that I love it in tartare and I love it in nigiri where it's just on a bed of rice, anywhere where you can really get that unctuous flavor, that meaty texture right in front, I really enjoy. You can find it like that here in New York. There's a place called Delice and Saracen, which sells it as an unbelievable tartare. And at Whole Foods, they make delicious nigiri and sushi rolls with it. When it comes to developing a, a new product, what is really the proper method for testing the texture, taste, or any element that you use as metrics? What are those metrics and, and how do you actually test them when developing the product? So I'd say the main components that go into making sure the product is perfect are of course taste and texture. You wanna make sure that the ingredients and the allergen profile and the nutritional profile align with the consumer you're trying to reach. And of course, what's also extremely important is the consistency of the product. Especially when you're selling into restaurants or food service operators, the final user of the product who's going to make it and place it in front of the consumer is somebody that is not, you know, you don't have control over that process. And you can't use packaging to educate the chef on how to do it or to educate the consumer on how to eat it because it comes in bulk packaging where they're not going to experience it the way that we would make it. So it's extraordinarily important that we make the product very consistent in taste, texture, color, and everything else so that the consumer has the best experience every single time. In terms of how we test that, it's really about constantly, constantly being on top of taking each batch and taking a sample of it. We test things like salinity levels, bricks levels, which have to do with the sugar content, pH levels to make sure that our acidity or base off, things of that nature. And we also, of course, do extensive taste testing of our products with consumers before we go to market. So when it comes to the future of food, there's a lot of talk about plant-based. And I think that Impossible Foods or Impossible Burger is really leading the efforts in the mainstream, and they have a lot of venture capital behind them to do that, and they are doing a great job. But what do you think is the cause for so much interest toward plant-based diet or plant-based foods as of late? I do want to mention that on the clean meat and cultured meat side, the CEO of Mosa Meat, which is one of the companies really pioneering the cultured meat efforts, has suggested on multiple occasions that entrepreneurs should actually be focusing on plant-based products or that he would put his money on plant-based products. So what do you think has caused this shift? I have tremendous respect for Mark Post and the work he's doing at Mosa and all of the different entrepreneurs working on plant-based and clean meat. And I think that they both have a need and an opportunity in the marketplace. The nice thing is that plant-based products are here right now and we can get them in front of consumers today and there aren't nearly as many barriers as will have to be overcome by clean meat over the coming years through regulation, consumer acceptance, messaging, etc. Though I look forward to seeing those products come to market because of the tremendous impact they can have on the environment and on animals. When it comes to plant-based offerings, the real motivation is driven entirely by consumer demand. Consumers are becoming more and more aware every day of the shocking environmental, public health, and animal welfare implications of raising animals on crowded factory farms, treating them like commodities instead of like living sentient beings, and rushing them through a mill of production or of slaughter. Really, it is the cause of major disease. It is one of the leading causes 
causes of climate change globally, of water pollution and air pollution, and it's one of the leading causes of the most preventable types of diet-related disease, like ischemic heart disease, type 2 diabetes, and certain kinds of cancer. People are becoming more aware of all of these challenges, and they're looking for those healthy options that they can replace, even if it's just one meal or one day of the week at a time, so that they can start to reduce their negative effects on themselves and the planet. And I think it's a wonderful thing. Campaigns like Meatless Mondays and other efforts to get people to start eating more consciously and start making decisions that are easy for anybody to step into make it possible to move away from an old mentality this community had of an all or nothing approach, of a judgmental approach. When I became vegan 16 years ago, I was very, very affected by the affected emotionally by the treatment of animals on factory farms and by the impact of this eating on the world. And I was quite hurt and by default quite angry. But what I came to realize was just like I was not aware prior to my exposure to this information, nobody else is either. And our society has raised people believing a certain way, and we can't punish them or blame them for the choices they're making. Rather, it is our responsibility as people who are encouraging conscientious eating to make that solution more affordable, more convenient, more accessible, and more visible. The analogy I always use is that I am somebody who considers myself completely disgusted by the treatment of workers in sweatshops. Nevertheless, when I go shopping for clothes, I am not always as good as I could be about buying fair trade cotton or organic cotton or about buying clothes that were made by union workers. That's not because I don't care about the issue. It's because it's very, very difficult to find affordable, attractive, convenient clothes that meet those standards. And so rather than being judged or blamed, I want somebody to offer me a solution. And I think it is our responsibility to do the same for those who are so hungry to step into the plant-based world to try these delicious new foods, to educate them and make it more possible for them. The benefits of switching to plant-based or, you know, we use these same benefits when we're describing cultured meat or clean meat. It's really animal welfare, environmental aspects, and health. Based off our discussion, I think animal welfare is maybe number one for you. But what do you think for the general public, how do you think they would order that in terms of animal welfare, environment, and health? The general consumer. So my initial motivation for adopting first a vegetarian and then a vegan diet and lifestyle was certainly around awareness of the treatment of animals. But as I became aware of the tremendous environmental and health impacts, and as I went through my own health journey of losing weight and dramatically reducing my cholesterol levels, acne, chronic bronchitis, and other things, and learning about the effects of factory farming on the environment, I became extremely passionate about those issues as well. When it comes to the general population, the data that is available shows that the number one motivator for people choosing plant-based foods is health. And I think that's very important for us to keep in mind as a movement encouraging this lifestyle and behavior change is that people are affected by the diseases that are plaguing our society. The fastest growing population, not the largest, but the fastest growing population of flexitarians and even vegetarians is baby boomers. And I'd venture to say that the argument for that or the reason for that would be that they're coming to an age where they're having grandchildren and where they're experiencing more aches 
aches and pains and where they're understanding the consequences of heart disease and diabetes. Just like we see the big pharma commercials talking about some grandfather taking a pill so that he can run and play catch with his grandchild, these same grandparents and same baby boomers are thinking about how can they extend and improve their quality of life and they're recognizing that eating more fruits, vegetables, legumes, and whole grains is a great way to do that. Beyond that, I think that millennials and younger generations are incredibly motivated by the environment. The data that is coming out today showing that factory farming is responsible for more climate change than all of the transportation in the world combined is extremely powerful. And while we're talking about the importance of eliminating plastic straws, and I support that, and plastic bags, and switching to reusable water bottles, I think all of these things are so important. But we also need to be conscious about the foods we're eating and what a huge difference they can make. I think people are responding to that. Animals are one of the motivations that are often heard the loudest because from an emotional place, if somebody is exposed to the abhorrent cruelty that animals experience and they have a sensitive heart like so many of us do, of course they're gonna feel particularly passionate about that issue. And that's wonderful that they are so selfless as to wanna make a difference in the lives of the billions of animals who are harmed this way. But we need to be respectful of the fact that people have limited budgets, limited time, and limited education or awareness and for us to reach them where they're at and make it possible for those who don't have the luxury of being able to spend time away from their jobs or their families educating themselves about all of these issues that encouraging them to improve their own health conditions and take those small steps is a great way to get them in the door and make a difference for everyone. So digging a little deeper into what you mentioned about baby boomers, would you say that's the fastest growing segment towards, I guess, flexitarian and vegetarian, or is that the biggest segment? It is definitely the fastest growing, not the largest by any stretch, but it is the fastest growing, and the data shows it's because of fear over heart disease and cancer and diabetes. I see. And would you say that fear or knowing that it's healthier to switch to a different type of diet is because they're feeling it firsthand or because of the awareness and availability of resources, for example, being able to look up facts on the internet? I think it's really driven by their own experiences with diet-related disease. It's harder to keep off or lose weight, they're feeling more aches and pains, and their doctors are being more and more clear with them that they have to take their health into their own hands. And fortunately, we are slowly gaining more understanding that preventative medicine is the real medicine. That is what the Hippocratic Oath is all about. Let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. We are finally starting to become aware that the food we eat and the way we live our lives is as if not more impactful as the pharmaceutical or surgical interventions that sometimes are necessary, but that should be the last resort and not the first. So if baby boomers was the fastest growing, what is the biggest segment? I believe it is among the millennial generation, but I don't have the evidence in front of me. Modern grocery stores like Whole Foods are adding new sections such as meat and cheese alternatives to their aisles and inventory. Do you imagine a future where grocery stores have virtually a plant-based version for 
every animal product that's on store shelves? I do, absolutely, and we're seeing it happening. I can't think of very many foods that haven't had a plant-based analog created in the last couple of decades, and I mean everything. I've seen vegan shark fin soup, I've seen vegan caviar, I've seen vegan snails, and you name it, just about anything can be experienced in a plant-based or cultured way. And that's a very exciting future. I think that we're learning that you don't have to sacrifice cultural experiences, taste, affordability, texture, and fun just to enjoy a plant-based, sustainable, healthy, and ethical diet. And supermarkets of today are expanding their availability of these options in droves, not only in the whole foods of the world, but every supermarket. You go to Walmart and there are unbelievable amounts of organic and plant-based foods today, things that never would have been expected a decade ago. So the revolution is here and it is is growing more quickly every day. Where the foods are placed in the supermarket is something that I think is being tested in different environments with different kinds of products. And I've seen the pros and cons of integrating products into the sections of the proteins they're replacing and or of having them broken out. But I think that whether they're in the store or not is no longer a question. The explosion in plant-based product sales this year alone, in the last year we've seen a 20% rise in the sales of plant-based meat and dairy, according to recent data released from Nielsen and the Plant-Based Foods Association. And that explosion is only made possible when retailers are making those foods available to consumers. That's a great segue into really thinking about what the future butcher shop will look like. And what are your thoughts? Like, will, will it be there? Will it be replaced with alternatives? What do you think it'll be like to see a future butcher shop? So we already do have actually a few vegetarian or vegan butcher shops in this country and beyond. And I think that whether we call it a butcher shop or not, I do believe that where there is a demand for more specialized and personalized nutrition, as people become more aware of the need not for animal protein, but for protein writ large, having specialty stores, whether it's online or in person, that cater to the desire for protein, just like you'd have others like farmers markets that cater to the desire for fresh local produce, will become the norm. And I think that that means that those shops will little by little start offering more and more of the plant-based and cultured alternatives. And eventually, it's my hope and belief due to price competitiveness and due to consumer awareness and demand that eventually they will have a host of different plant-based and cultured products as the only options for people to make delicious, protein-rich diet decisions. So we have a question from one of our listeners. Julian from North Carolina asks if you see specifically, will plant-based products have an equal price to their alternatives in the near future? I absolutely think they will. Bruce Friedrich from the Good Food Institute was recently on another podcast speaking about this exact issue. And he was explaining that while we all look forward to a future where price protections for the animal agriculture industries from subsidies and checkoff programs are eliminated, the reality is as long as the only way to raise animals for food is to grow grain or vegetables, feed it to them, have them burn a ton of calories, and then give us a lot 
lot less output for food, as long as that is the system we're using, that could never be as economically efficient as feeding the grains and vegetables directly to humans. So as demand grows, which it is so quickly, supplies grow, and eventually I expect to see not only price competition, but extreme price benefits to the plant-based alternatives to animal products. You can learn more about David on LinkedIn and more about plant-based solutions at www.plantbasedsolutions.com, Ocean Hugger Foods at www.oceanhuggerfoods.com. David, are there any last insights you might have for our listeners today? Well, I really hope that people will come out and try Ahimi in all of the stores and restaurants in which we're selling it. I'm also excited to announce that when this podcast is released, we will be about to release our second product, our eggplant-based eel called Unami into restaurants in the U.S. And we are already securing deals to launch throughout Europe and Asia in 2019. So we're very excited to bring those products to the world to address not only the tremendous cruelty in fishing, but also prevent the extinction of so many endangered species in the oceans. Secondly, if you are interested in launching a plant-based product, please reach out to us at Plant-Based Solutions. We provide strategic marketing, branding, operations, product development, and business consulting services to companies just starting out, often before they're even in the market. I think be very helpful in bringing products to market. So we'd love to hear from you. And I'm just really grateful that you had me on the podcast, Alex. Thank you so much. Thank you. And David, I can't wait to try those products. And thanks so much for being with us and sharing your story on the Cultured Meat and Future Food Podcast. It's my pleasure. This is your host, Alex, and we look forward to being with you on our next episode.